Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Danielle. I'm Paul-Emile. And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. If you've been listening to our last few episodes, you know that we've been talking about women who've been going missing and found murdered in the downtown Edmonton area. Last week, we talked about some specific cases that the police think might be linked to a serial killer. At least they say they're not ruling out the possibility. But today, we're going to take a broader look at the problem of these women going missing from the Edmonton area, the task force that was put in place to try and protect these vulnerable women, and what has been accomplished so far. On last week's episode, you would have heard us mention Project CARE. According to the RCMP community website, Project CARE was developed as a subunit of the RCMP K division, which is the missing persons division. So this is just another task force within the police force. Correct. So it started as a subunit and then eventually became its own thing. It's mostly been disbanded like it still exists but it's more like social services and things like that now so it started in 2003 and it was put in place to help protect vulnerable people in Alberta from being murdered which is a sentence that I think we should never have to speak but there it is yeah you would think that uh, there's no need for a special program for only part of our society Right, so the police, part of their mandate should be protecting people from being murdered, but because it was happening so much to this specific group, they actually had to form a special project for it. Through the years, their mandate has changed, and there remains three main components of what they're doing, which is to collect personal information from vulnerable people. They work on harm reduction and education, and they work on collecting criminal intelligence. And we'll get into it later on, but really Project Care doesn't exist in the, in the sense of how it was first created anymore. The first, uh, the first part of that, of collecting information, uh, seems to be something that would right off the bat cause a, a problem with the people that they're trying to help. Because a lot of those people like, like to remain anonymous. They're, they're living a life under the radar. Right, and it was a big project because they had to gain these women's trust because they don't usually get along with the police. They've had run-ins with the police a lot of times. They've been charged, so they try to stay out of, you know, out of the police's radar so they don't get into trouble for things. Um, and that's a problem with the sex trade, right? Right, they'll avoid the police rather than go to them for help. Correct, and... That's a big problem because they are often very vulnerable. They'll often be victims of crimes, but these things will never be reported, and often when they are, it's not taken seriously. If you do a search for Project Care on the CBC website, so if you just type Project Care, which is with the, the letter K, not the letter C, 
you're going to find article after article about missing and murdered women that were part of Project CARE, some of them whose remains have been found, some of them who haven't. One of the things you won't find very much of is information about solved cases. So a lot of the victims were victims after they got involved with the Project CARE? Some of them were, some of them weren't. So we're going to get into that a little bit more, but when the police said they were collecting information, part of that was just trying to document the women who were in that downtown area who spent time and kind of document their movements and know when they had gone missing. So some of them were known to Project CARE before they went missing and some of them weren't. The big idea behind Project CARE being formed wasn't a bad one. I have some mixed feelings about the timeliness of it. But basically, after Robert Picton was arrested in 2002 and the breadth of his killings was understood, people were really critical of the Vancouver Police Department because they hadn't taken the idea that they had a serial killer on their hands very seriously. People who were trying to report his victims missing were not taken seriously either. Often they couldn't even file a missing persons report and most of those women were part of the sex trade. So when everything started coming to light, the police department there really did not look good. Right. Edmonton did know that they also had a problem. It was pretty clear that either they had a serial killer operating or that there were many bad people operating in the area that knew that this was a good place to prey on vulnerable women. So it kind of became a hunting or the possibility of being a hunting ground for these killers. Yes, and there's definitely more than one killer that operated in that area. We don't really know if the bulk of those murders are attributed to one person or if it was just multiple people. The answer we don't really have, but it was definitely more than one person. Many women had gone missing from the downtown core and many of them were later found murdered in Edmonton and their surrounding areas. So I suspect a lot of those women too were not originally from the Edmonton area, but had came in from other communities and it may have taken some time for their families and loved ones to even realize they were missing because many times there's there's a relationship there that, that has been broken between the families. Yeah, I, I think that was the case for several of them. I know the downtown Edmonton area, I don't know if it's still like that, but it was known for having a drug problem. There were a lot of people with addiction, so I think some of them kind of went to that area because there is the accessibility to drugs. And I know the social services down there were working really hard to try and get those women off the street, keep them as safe as possible. But at one point, there was only so much that social services could do. So at this point with Project CARE, it's almost like the police had the same mandate as social services with trying to protect these women. They were kind of working hand in hand. According to a 2016 Globe and Mail article, the powers that be in Edmonton decided to form a team to try and either put a stop to what was happening or to gain enough information to prevent more murders from happening. They poured a lot of money and resources into Project CARE. They had 46 police officers working, so it was both the Edmonton police and the RCMP. The project even had their own crown attorney overseeing what they were doing. The team was costing them several million dollars per year. 
Their main mandate was to find serial killers or a serial killer. So that's a lot of time and energy spent on. They weren't messing around. They, at this point, they're taking this very seriously. So the Globe and Mail in 2016 sort of went back through the archives to try and figure out how many missing and murdered women that were sort of part of this part of this case, part of these killings that fit that same profile. And they found that there were 49 missing women. That was from 1986 to when this task force started, which was in 2003. That's a huge number. 63.6% of these missing women were Indigenous. When we're talking about Project CARE, we're not necessarily talking directly about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, but we're still kind of talking about it because the biggest part, the biggest percentage of these missing women are First Nations. Right. According to an article from narcity.com from 2020, BC and Alberta have the highest rate of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And in Alberta, Indigenous women have seven times more chances of being murdered than non-Indigenous women, which are pretty staggering figures. It is staggering. So Alberta was trying to put a halt to this. They put together Project CARE. One of the reasons I said in the beginning that I was having some trouble with the timing of this is just that they knew they had a problem. They had to wait for Picton to be caught and realize what it would look like for them if they went through the same thing. Obviously, it's not too little too late. It needed to be in place, but I felt like it was something that should have been done a decade ago. Yeah, and it makes you question everything else that, well, what has been done and what has not been done. And there's cases like that right across the country because there was a similar situation, not with First Nations people, but uh, in Halifax where they were murdering sex trade workers. And it took a while before they realized they had somebody that was out there targeting them. And I can understand why it would take a while, like... I guess you, you, nobody ever wants to think they have a serial killer in their area. It's not, it's not a good thought or a good feeling, but I don't think putting your head in the sand about it is good either. And I think we forget also um, the sharing of information in 2020. That whole process has grown on us by leaps and bounds, and we accept it now. You know, we want to know something. We'll grab our phone and Google something. And even in 2003... I'm not sure that it was that simple to share and connect all of these cases in one database and have access to it from different police forces or detachments. I'm not even sure that in like nowadays in 2021, it's happening as much as we think it is. Right. All that to say that Project CARE has been put in place. They had police officers, they had specialists, they had the resources and the money. But in order to make any kind of progress, they had to connect with Edmonton's most at-risk group. So they had to connect with the vulnerable people that were at risk of, of becoming prey to these killers or killer. They sent teams of officers out on the streets to talk to the homeless women, to the women who worked in sex trades, the ones that were most vulnerable. The officers were trying to gain intelligence. One of the things that they were looking for is 
they thought they might be able to find some women who had become almost victims of their attackers. The ones that had gotten away because they believed that if they could find women who had gotten away, they might be able to lead them towards the killer. Yes, they might be able to get a description of somebody or a vehicle. Exactly. This hopefully would help them identify um, perpetrators. Women could also register with the team, leave their information, but they could also leave their DNA, which is also a very sort of dark idea that if these women do fall victim and their remains are found, it will help the police identify them. Well, the message there is almost whenever you become a victim, we'll be able to identify you. And I can't even imagine the thought of the thought process between agreeing to give your DNA and thinking, does this mean I'm next? Would you think, oh, it won't happen to me, I'm just doing this because? Like, I don't know, the, the thinking there when you're giving that DNA sample must be really scary. Well, the message is not uh, one that you're doing something in order to protect yourself. You're simply doing something in order to have your body identified. I guess probably their thinking for that was, well, at least if something, like, at least if something happens to me, my family will know. Social services that were working in the downtown Edmonton area felt that the police were really taking unprecedented steps to help protect the women who were working in the sex trade. They said that the women in sex work were no longer feeling afraid of the police because they knew the police weren't coming there to arrest them, but often just to talk to them and try to gather information. The police were also reaching out to different social services groups to share information so that they could get information from social services and in turn share some stuff that maybe they didn't know. I think that almost makes it feel like the ideal situation where everyone's in communication, everyone's looking out for everyone's best interest. I think there's always that thing with sex work where theoretically in most places around the world it's illegal but by making it illegal, you're putting these women in very vulnerable positions. Yeah, I, I agree because they're doing what they're doing out of uh, uh, a means to try and survive. But at the same time, they're the ones that are considered the criminal. Right. And this Project Care, from what you're explaining, is at least giving the impression that they're trying to help. I'm sure there's more to come that. No, I think that they were. I don't think they were, and we'll get into that part of it a little bit more. I don't think they were really successful, and I'm not sure exactly why. But I think, in this case, I think what they were trying to do was the right thing. I don't know if they were just too late to the game. Like, so many years had gone by and so much had happened that they were just way behind. But I think they are trying to do the right thing. Carrie Thompson, who was a support worker for... Miti Child and Family Services Society was interviewed in the Globe and Mail article and recalls attending Corey Ottenbright's funeral with one of her friends. Now, Corey Ottenbright, we talked about last week. Um, she was one of the women found in the same area where Amber Tukaro's remains were. So, Carrie Thompson attended the funeral and she had Charlene Gauld with her. Charlene was a friend of Corey's and was also a sex worker. A week after the funeral, Mrs. Gould's burned body was found in a wooded area southeast of Edmonton. I'm sure to the social workers, it felt like these women were disappearing and being murdered every minute. 
That must have been defeating when you're trying to do good and it's continuous you continuously find out that one of your one of the people you're trying to help again has been murdered. So. Yeah. And the care team faced several obstacles that made their work into finding a serial killer difficult. The victim and the perpetrator were not necessarily well known to one another, which makes any case harder to solve. So when we're talking about a murder that's not committed by someone known to the victim, it's always harder to figure out what's happened because that link's not there. Right, because, you know, if I get murdered in my house, they're going to be looking at probably family first and uh, spouses and, and friends, connections, whatever. They've got a place to start. Here you've got two unknowns. Exactly. The other thing is that a lot of times when they finally found the victim's remains, weeks, months, and in some cases even years had passed by. So talking to witnesses was almost impossible. Their memories weren't fresh. They were quite faded. And because of a lot of these victims' lifestyles, it was kind of difficult to pinpoint the last time they were seen. Right. And you've got people that have had different issues with the lifestyle so their memories are probably not as good as they were or at the time of the incident they may not have been in a very good place right and the other thing which we've touched on a little bit earlier is that the people involved or the people that might have information don't always want to talk to the police they don't feel comfortable giving this information and they might feel like they're in danger as well if they share things that they know sure or and in danger of being charged with something else because at the time they may, have, they may have been involved in something that was illegal. One of the women to go missing was Kara King. She went missing in 1997, and her remains were found later on in a farmer's field. This was before Project Care was put in place. Her mother said that she faced several obstacles when she tried to report her daughter missing. And she said with Project Care in place, these missing persons reports were taken a lot more seriously. For her, when she tried to report her daughter missing, she went to the police several times, and even by the time her daughter's remains were found, the police still hadn't opened a missing persons file. So she felt that with Project Care in place, things were being dealt with a lot better, reports were being taken seriously. So we're going to talk a little bit about one of the successes that Project Care had, we're going to call it kind of a success. They did get an arrest in this case. And you might recognize this person's name from the last episode. So in 2004, so this would have been just a year after Project Care's inception, the police found the remains of Rachel Quinney in the woods. They'd actually been directed to these remains by Thomas Vekla, who told them that he'd actually come upon the body just by happenstance a week prior to reporting it. The police were suspicious of Zvekla. He had an extensive criminal history, but they didn't have enough evidence to charge him with the crime. And then, as we discussed last episode, two years later, Teresa Innes' remains were found in a hockey bag that Zvekla had left at his sister's house. Wow. So he left the body in a bag at his sister's? Yes. So he went to his sister's house with a hockey bag. He told her not to worry about the bag. It was just compost and worms in there. 
of course, alarm bells. If anyone tells you anything like that, I don't think you'll think anything but there's something bad in here. Um, so when he left, they went to look in the bag and her remains were in there. He'd killed her and kept her in a freezer for quite some time before transporting her to his sister's. He ended up being charged with both Teresa and Rachel's murders, but he was only found guilty of Teresa's. There was no evidence really linking him to Rachel. The police actually suspected him of six other murders, but he wasn't charged with any of them. He wasn't talking either. One minute he would say that he was one of Canada's most notorious serial killers, or he compared himself to Picton, and the next minute he would profess his innocence, so... They really didn't get anything from him. Theoretically, he's not considered a serial killer because there's only really one murder he's charged with. It was through Project Care's mandate that he got charged, but he wasn't really, I guess, fulfilling their mandate if you're really looking at the bottom line. It did really seem like the police were pooling their resources and trying to find the people responsible for these murders, but again, they made very little progress. As we mentioned earlier, like, was it a question of they got to the game too late? Like, things had been going on for over 10 years already by the time they seriously started looking at it? Were they just too far behind? Like, it's it's kind of hard to, to figure out exactly what went wrong there. I think the amount of people that were involved in the project and the financial burden on the, that the project was bringing to the police force um, they must have been under an awful lot of pressure also to provide results. I'm sure they were, yes. 49 women, according to the Globe and Mail, that went missing. And all in all, there were only nine cases where the responsible person was identified. So that's not a great result. No, it isn't. A lot of people, and I think including the police themselves, can't understand why the numbers were so low. But so many families are still left without answers and so many victims didn't receive justice. I tried to find some up-to-date numbers about what has happened since 2016 when that Globe and Mail article came out. But gathering specifics about the missing women from downtown Edmonton is out of the scope of what I'm able or have time to do. And I couldn't find anyone who'd been looking specifically at that information. In 2012, Project Care was all but disbanded. The Edmonton Police Service removed its officers and the RCMP slowly shut down the project. According to one of the officers who worked on the project, he said that even though they didn't get a large number of people convicted, the number of murders decreased significantly. According to the Globe and Mail research, the number of murders did fall significantly starting in the 2000s and have remained a lot lower ever since. And though Edmonton still has one of the highest murder rates in Canada, the victim profile has changed. What they're trying to say is if there was someone targeting sex workers, they've stopped. They've changed the type of the, the victims uh, that they were looking for. Not necessarily. So the number of murders could just be Edmonton is a more violent city because of various problems that are there. I don't think those numbers are necessarily linked to a serial killer. We really don't know what happened from 86 to the early 2000s when all of these women were going missing and being killed. I mean, we're talking about nine cases that had a conviction, 
So let's say it's 40 women. Who's responsible? Is it another multiple people that are responsible for these cases? Or is it one person that's responsible for all the remaining cases or the bulk of them? Or is it somebody that is now in jail that was responsible for some of them? Could be in jail, could be dead. They could have just stopped. I mean, we think serial killers as, oh, they'll never stop until they are stopped. But there are cases where they did not get caught and they stopped and were just later found out for other reasons. Or they're too weak and elderly to continue. They get older, they move somewhere else. So there's a lot of questions and still no answers. And I don't know if they're still looking for someone. So there is a historic crime division, basically a cold case unit, and I don't know if they're still thinking that this is a serial killer and we're still looking for him, or if they're just trying to solve crimes sort of as standalones once they've gone cold. And so much time has passed also that unless somebody comes forward with information, the case is sitting in a file somewhere. There's that. I mean, I always go back to the Golden State Killer who, decades after he stopped killing, was caught. So I think we, we still have hope of finding justice for these women. I didn't really see much information about DNA being found at the crime scenes. I don't know if it exists, if it's been tested and just no hits on it. I didn't see any information about that, but I'd like to hope that they they do have something and that they're able to solve these crimes at some point. Some semblance of Project Care still exists, like under that name, but they're no longer working on the streets like they used to, which is unfortunate because it seems like a lot of the headway that was being made to protect the vulnerable people and the people working in the sex trade may have been lost. It's very difficult if you're not on the street, day to day, with the people that are at risk. And you're sitting in an office waiting for them to come to you. People that are there to help are not necessarily easy to find Yeah. for the people that need them. Yeah, and I think harm reduction, like we talk about it all the time, but I think we don't really know how to implement it yet. Also, when a person is at the point where they're on the street working as a sex worker, or dealing with addictions. The system failed them somewhere along the way. It didn't happen just now when they're found on the street, dead of an opioid overdose. Things bring you to that point. Right. In 2020, the Alberta government announced the Joint Working Group on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, according to NARCITY. Their goal is to help prevent violence and promote the safety of these women. So it's not the same as care, but hopefully they can be putting resources in the right direction to help the vulnerable women, the women who are at risk of being victims of crimes. Another thing the Narcity article mentioned is that we actually all need to do our part as a society to help support Indigenous people receive justice. And I think they had a really good point there. Society needs to be interested for resources to go into place. So we need to listen and believe victims. And this can be applied to a lot of different victims, but in this case, we're talking about people from First Nations descent. We need to educate ourselves on what has happened in their history and what is currently happening to them and how they're being treated in society. We also need to give them platforms to be heard. So I think this week, instead of relating a moment of kindness, I think we should all do something 
towards being helpers to indigenous people. It doesn't have to be anything like any grand gesture. Any small gestures that we can do will be helpful. It can be as simple as buying and reading a book from an indigenous author, uh, following a First Nations influencer, or supporting a local artist. You can read up on history that you're not familiar with or current events that you don't know enough about. You can reach out, you can listen, and you can ask questions and be ready to be wrong about things. I agree, and there's really even a, a smaller step than that. And uh, I know with uh, the pandemic that we're in, traveling is a little bit more difficult, but most of us live within a First Nations community within our zone. And it can be as simple as going to a business in one of the First Nations communities and, and supporting the small local business that's there. They have grocery stores, they have canteens, they have all sorts of things. So. Right. If it can be done safely within the restrictions that you're in, any kind of support you can do. I think we should all do something this week. And what I will be doing, so some episodes ago, I spoke to Susan Levi-Peters, and we like really briefly mentioned the 60s scoop that happened. And I know what it was, but I don't know any detail beyond that. So what I'm going to do over the next week or so is start researching an episode on the 60s scoop. So... It's something that I will be knowledgeable enough to talk about. So that's what my commitment is for this week. Well, I guess maybe I should start reading up on that too. Right, so we um, will have that episode coming out in a couple weeks then. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Every single download or stream is appreciated. If you want, you can join us on Patreon. Our first episode is up, um, which is a review of I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. For next month's full Patreon episode, I'm going to put myself through the trauma of re-watching the documentary Dear Zachary and having a discussion about that film. You can find us on Instagram at Crime and Mystery Canada, and we have a Facebook group by the same name. Or you can reach us at crimeandmysterycanada at gmail.com. As always, stay safe out there and have a good night. Good night.